Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Thank you and welcome. If you can, turn your Bibles in John chapter 13 and please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that we would behold wondrous things out of your law and allow it to change our hearts and make us a little bit more like Christ. We ask in your name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. <clears throat> Actions speak louder than words. This expression is not always true, but it is sometimes true. And in some instances, it is only actions that speak at all. The need for action in some circumstances reminds me of the farmer who was stuck in the middle of the road with his donkey. The donkey had planted his feet firmly on the ground and would not move no matter what the farmer did. So the man stood there shouting at the donkey and getting angrier all the time. While this was going on, another farmer came down the road and immediately sized up the problem. You want some help, he asked. I sure could use it, the first farmer answered, but I don't think it will do any good. I've been shouting at this stupid donkey for half an hour, and it just won't budge. I can fix that, the second man answered. He went over to the side of the road, picked up a two-by-four, and then came back and smashed the donkey right between the eyes. After that, he stood back and said, let's go, in a normal tone of voice, and the donkey started off. I don't understand it, said the owner. I yelled at him, and he acted as if he didn't even hear me. You spoke in a normal tone of voice, and he moved off. That's true, said the second man, but first I had to get his attention. I'm sure Jesus sometimes felt like that. He has talked and talked to his disciples about the importance of serving one another and taking the lower position But in chapter 13, he is going to take those words and put them into action, and they will have about the same effect as getting hit by a two-by-four. Look at verse 1 with me. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. As chapter 13 opens, Jesus' public ministry to Israel has ended, and there would be no more public discourses. In chapters 13 through 17, Jesus turned from public ministry to those who rejected him to private ministry to those who have received him. Chapters 13 to 17 record what we know as the upper room discourse. In these five chapters, we're going to see intimate teachings about service, love, the Holy Spirit, heaven, our union with Christ, and prayer. Alexander McLaren eloquently puts it like this. 
Nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such luminous brightness. Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and yet so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistening with tears looked and had the tears dried. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech. Verse 1 tells us that this was right before the Passover. Now, the Feast of the Passover was the annual Jewish festival commemorating God's deliverance of Israel to the bondage in Egypt. Now, the name derived from the angel of death that would pass over the house of the Hebrews when he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, this Passover would be the last divinely authorized one. From this point on, there would be a new memorial, not one recalling the lamb's blood on doorposts, but the Lamb of God poured out for the many forgiveness of our sins. The Last Supper celebrated by the Lord with his disciples gave him the opportunity to use these elements of the Passover meal to form a transition from the Old Covenant Passover to the New Covenant of the Lord's Supper. The timeline of this would be that Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a Sunday, and on Monday he had cleansed the temple. Tuesday was a day of conflict as the religious leaders sought to trip him up and give evidence for his arrest. These are events that are recorded in Matthew 21 through 25. Wednesday was probably a day of rest, but on Thursday he met in the upper room with his disciples in order to observe the Passover. As you read through the Gospel of John, the shadow of the cross grows longer and darker until now we stand at the foot of the cross on the evening before the crucifixion. And somewhere between just 15 and 18 hours, the Lord would be suspended between the sky and earth as the sin bearer of all mankind. We are told in verse 1 that Jesus knew his hour had come and he was getting ready to depart from this world. Now there's a kernel of truth packed into that that is very easy to read over, and it is this. Jesus knew he was about to depart from this world. Barring the rapture, that is something that everyone in this room needs to think about. There will come a day when we too will depart from this world. However, as weird as it sounds, if we know Christ, the day of our death will actually be the greatest day of our lives. Now, Thomas Brooks was an English Puritan preacher and author back in the 1600s. Though he's known best for his many books and theological essays, we also have several of his sermons in print, some of which are funeral sermons. In one funeral sermon, Brooks reminds his listeners that for the believer, death not only ceases to be a conqueror, instead death actually becomes God's gentle helper. He writes, Death is another Moses. It delivers people out of bondage and from making bricks in Egypt. Remember, this death is that in a moment frees a person from those diseases, corruptions, temptations that no duties, grace, or ordinances could do. He finishes by saying, Every prayer then when we die shall have its answer. 
All hungering and thirsting shall be filled and satisfied. Every sigh, groan, and tear that has fallen from the saints' eyes shall be recompensed. That is not death, but life, which joins the dying one to Christ. I plead with you, if you have not done that already, to do that this morning. But the end of verse 1 is one of the most beautiful thoughts in all of Scripture, where we are told, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. Now, that's a very curious expression, the full extent of his love. In Greek, the word is telos, which literally means perfection. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, now at the end, loved them perfectly. Now, it could mean simply that he showed them love to the very end, meaning even on his last night with them. But the words seem to mean something more than that, suggesting that what he was about to do was the ultimate expression of his love for them. Now, that's a fascinating thought, because the thing he was about to do was an incredibly common and mundane thing. We will see in a couple weeks that he was just going to wash their feet. It would be like saying on their 50th wedding anniversary, Bob showed his wife the full extent of his love. He mopped the kitchen floor. Let me just be transparently honest and tell you that one of the things that I struggle to believe is the love of God. Now, some people struggle with the judgment of God or the wrath of God, but I don't. I've lived on this earth long enough to know that we deserve wrath and judgment. The harder thing for me to accept is the love of God. Why? Because I know me and everything about me. And there's been times when I didn't love me. So how can a morally perfect and pure God possibly love me? That's why the gospel is called good news. His love is greater than ours. Now, obviously, we are not loved because we are lovable, for we are not. It is true that some of us may be more lovable to some others of us, but that is only because we're looking at it from a matter of human perspective. From God's perspective, there is nothing in us to make us even remotely desirable. He is holy. We are unholy. He is just. We are unjust. He is sinless. We struggle with sins and multiplicity. Also, God has not loved us because we first loved him. He is not merely returning our love because we did not love him. On this point, the Apostle John writes clearly, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, why does God love us? The only answer is the one he gave Moses concerning the children of Israel where we are told, The Lord did not set his affection on you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, because you were less numerous than all the people. Then it says, But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers. The reason that God loves us is that he loves us. Beyond that, his love is inexplainable. Did you know that God loves you just as much now as he will in a billion years 
when you are sinless and perfect. As Karl Barth, who was a prolific writer and a man of great intellect, got older, his faith got simpler and, I believe, deeper. Toward the end of his life, he was asked to state the most profound truth that he had learned from the Bible. He replied by repeating the words of a well-known children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think Barth was right. For the more that I know Jesus, the more that I love him. But the more I know me, the more I am amazed that he still loves me. I believe it is in this spirit of amazement that John refers to himself as a disciple that Jesus loved. Such love is indeed forever. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loves them to the end. Now, this is where it gets sticky. This is the last supper between Jesus and his disciples. Now, it's not mentioned here in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that at this last supper, a fight had broken out between the disciples over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You see, the disciples believed that soon, imminently, Jesus Christ was going to take over and cast out the Roman oppressors and come into political power. So at this point, they were arguing over who was going to have the highest position in the new cabinet. Can you believe that? Here are the disciples arguing about who's going to get the bigger office, the one in the corner with all the windows and the pretty secretary. In fact, not long before this, it's even worse. Jesus tells his disciples that he's on his way to die, and Matthew tells us that the mother Zebedee's son comes and asks for a favor. In other words, immediately after Jesus says he is going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, flogged, and crucified, she says, yeah, Lord, sorry about all that. But before that happens, can I get in a quick favor? She may be thinking, this is good timing. I can get this in right under the wire. So here she goes. Jesus, would you do me a solid? You know my boys, Jimmy and Johnny. Before you're humiliated and martyred in the ultimate act of self-emptying sacrificial love, could I possibly go ahead and get my boys a promotion? Could I get them an upgrade? I know you have 12 disciples and all, but could you make sure that my boys are disciple number one and disciple number two in the kingdom? You know, no big deal. Now, we are told that this made the other disciples extremely upset when they heard this. But don't think they are upset for Jesus' sake. No, they're just upset that they didn't think of it first. But think about that. Jesus is about to ascend to the heights by choosing the depths. Jesus Christ is about to pull off the greatest victory by being captured and tortured and oppressed and murdered. And those closest to him are still completely clueless. Now, this shows us his great love for them and us, that he kept going towards the cross right then instead of striking them dead or at least turning them into a bunch of lizards. Jesus' understanding of power and success is so completely topsy-turvy that there is not a single culture or ideology that can really understand or accept it. It cuts against everything that we know. Now, we've talked about it before. Jesus says the way up is down. The way to power is to serve. The way to seek happiness is not to get your own happiness, but the happiness of someone else. 
It's an inside-out understanding of greatness. And his disciples are completely clueless. And yet, Jesus looked at this motley crew of ragtag renegades and loved them to the end, or literally, to the uttermost. In other words, he loved them without any limits because though he was aware of their past faltering, he still loved them. Past faltering, present failure, future flaws, and stinky feet notwithstanding. Jesus saw his disciples not only in their present vulnerabilities, but also in their eventual victory and will now show them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, please, and we can all go eat tacos. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The word traitor is an ugly word in any language. There are few people more despised than those who betray their country, cause, or trust. And nations have generally reserved the severest punishment, often the death penalty, for those who commit acts of treason. During the American Revolution, Simon Gurdy, a deserter from the Continental Army, led raiding parties of the Native Americans against the colonists. Gurdy was so much feared for his brutality, so much that he was dubbed the Great Renegade. But the most infamous traitor of the Revolutionary War in all of American history was, of course, Benedict Arnold. Annoyed at being passed over for promotion and seeking money to fund his extravagant lifestyle, Arnold offered to surrender the key fort at West Point to the British. He deserted to the British and fought against his own countrymen. But instead of glory, he died in exile in England, scorned by the Americans and the British alike. But the most notorious traitor in the Bible and in all of history was Judas Iscariot. Judas had the incredible privilege of being one of the 12 closest followers of the Lord during his time of earthly ministry. Yet, inconceivably, after more than three years of living constantly with the incomparably perfect Jesus, observing the miracles he performed and hearing his teaching, Judas betrayed him to his death. Now, the dark, tragic story of Judas reveals the depths of evil to which the human heart is capable of sinking, even in the very best of circumstances. Now, the early church universally detested and scorned Judas. For instance, his name appears last in every New Testament list of the apostles, except for the one in Acts chapter 1, where it does not even appear at all. In addition, when the gospel writers mention Judas, they always identify him at the end as the traitor who betrayed Jesus. Even today, I don't know anyone who would name their son Judas. Now that word translated put in verse 2 literally means to throw. It reminds us of the fiery darts of the wicked one. But Judas was an unbeliever. So he did not have the shield of faith to ward off Satan's attacks. Just a few days before the Last Supper, however, an incident occurred that was apparently the last straw for Judas. At a dinner in Bethany given in Jesus' honor, Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet with a large amount of expensive perfume. 
Shocked and outraged, Judas protested indignantly. Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas, of course, cared nothing for the poor. He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer from it. It would seem that losing out of the opportunity to embezzle from that vast sum of money infuriated Judas. Judas simmering discontent, then boiling over. We are told in Mark chapter 14 that immediately after this, he went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. But make no mistake about this. His role in the divine plan was not something apart from his own desire. As I said last week, God did not make us robots. So he was not programmed to betray Jesus against his will. Judas freely chose to do what he did and was accountable for those actions. But what's concerning to me is what began in the life of Judas as simple greed has turned into the greatest act of, betray act of betrayal in all of human history. Do you know what that teaches us this morning? Your temperament leaves you more susceptible to some sins than others. So, do you know yourself? John Owen warns that he who watches not this thoroughly, who is not exactly skilled in the knowledge of himself, will never be disentangled from one temptation or another all of his days. So we should pay close attention to the peculiar luster corruptions that have become firmly rooted in our hearts. While we could call Delilah sins, maybe we could call them our darling delights. Delilah sins, like Samson's Philistine mistress, likes to sit on our laps and whisper sweet nothings into our ears. But in the end, they will betray us to our enemies in a heartbeat and cut off all of our moral strength. One commentator puts it like this. We must especially watch against the affirmity that mostly annoys us. These are the specific sin patterns we have cultivated through willful and habitual sin. I like this part. Like deep ruts that furrow a muddy, a muddy road, these vices are etched into our lives through daily routines, self-justifying rationalization, and continual repetition. The proverb says, A righteous man seeks to understand his way, while the folly of fools is deceit. What that means is, Honest men and women, men are always going to be doing honest introspection, and they are big enough to apologize and make restitution when they are wrong. Now, a fool will not apologize to God or to anyone. They will simply stiffen their neck and harden their heart. I've learned that about 90% of counseling is like working with a rusted bolt that won't turn. And until you break it loose... You really can't fix anything. Likewise, when a person is willing to admit their sin, you can now begin to work with them. But there is something about the human race that just doesn't like to admit that we are wrong. Now, this is nothing new, of course. Aaron, did you make that golden calf? No, sir, Mr. Moses. 
All I did was throw in the gold and out popped this calf. Crazy, ain't it? Adam, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you that were off limits? Well, Lord, the woman that you gave me, which I didn't ask for, by the way, it wasn't a prayer request or anything, she led me into this. So I'm just going to mosey on over there and eat a banana while you two work this thing out. So here's the thing. We all need to realize this morning that we are all capable of some, to some extent of having some Judas-like qualities if we don't proactively choose to continually walk in the Holy Spirit. What do I mean? Throughout history, many people have identified themselves as followers of Christ by various external marks, such as special clothes or even distinctive haircuts. In more recent times, some have worn lapel pins, crosses, or other jewelry, or they've donned Christian clothing that has a theme on it, or they've affixed Calvary Chapel bumper stickers to their cars, which, by the way, I have in my office if you want any. But these external displays of loyalty to Christ are not necessarily wrong, and at times they can be helpful in drawing attention to someone's Christian testimony. But it is not such superficial outward symbols that ultimately mark a true follower of Christ. It is the internal attitudes of our hearts. On the night before he's about to die, his very last night with his disciples, what is his concern? In verse 1 and in verse 17, at the beginning and the end, there's a hint. In verse 1 it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And in verse 17 he says, having known these things, now I would like you to start doing these things. What he's saying is, you have listened to many things that I have said, and you have somewhat learned them, but you haven't looked at who I am and become like that. You haven't really changed from who you were. You haven't become. I've given you an example, but you're not living that way. I'm giving you a teaching, but I'm still just your teacher. It hasn't passed into your life. It hasn't changed you from the inside. That's what he's talking about. Think about that. Judas Iscariot had the best small group experience anybody has ever had. Judas Iscariot had the best preacher than anybody has ever had. Judas Iscariot had the best incredible moral example that anybody has ever had. Judas had the most incredible training that anybody has ever had. But what makes false disciples so difficult to detect is they often have the outward trappings of genuine disciples, such as a visible morality, an intellectual knowledge of the Bible, and even a level of involvement in the church. But such things are really just neutral. They neither prove nor disprove a person's faith. For instance, the rich young ruler was outwardly moral, but went away from his encounter with Christ, grieving and unsaved. Jesus denounced the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they were full of dead men's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. So as we finish up today, you and I must not look at those things to tell whether or not the Spirit of God is really working in us and whether or not we truly understand who Christ is. We have to look 
at the fruit in our lives. The real question is, think about the fruit of the Spirit and then have the guts to ask somebody who really knows you and has known you for a really long time. Are you a better listener than you used to be? Are you less controlling of people? If you're the gentle, sympathetic type, have you gotten more direct? Or if you're the direct type, have you gotten more gentle and sympathetic? Would your friends say of you that you're much more patient and much more gracious when people criticize you than what you used to be? Would people say that you're much more poised when you fail? You, didn't, you don't get all down and kick yourself. Would people say that when you have something to admit, when you've done wrong, when you have to repent about something, it's something that happens so quickly now and with such ease. It's so natural. It's kind of even joyful. It's not at all traumatic. It's not at all self-flagellating. Are you a better repenter than you have ever been? The key to all of this, no matter our answer to those questions, is to understand and accept the love of God in our lives, for it is the only thing that has the power to change us. Let us pray. Lord, I can so identify with your disciples. Even after following you for over three decades, I can still be so completely clueless. So open the eyes of our heart this morning to who you are and what you want to accomplish in our lives. And we ask this in the name of our servant king. Amen. Um, I don't know.